sure am enjoying the good, good music and the good selection of songs and all of you singing so well out in the woods. Well, here we are again in the life of Simon Peter entitled Simon Peter and Me. So I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 6 because we've seen Simon Peter introduced to the Lord Jesus. You are Simon. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we've also seen Simon Peter, follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we seek to follow him more closely because it's Simon Peter and me. Well, this morning we're going to start in a a new section about Simon Peter's life. Because as I've mentioned to you, and I'll mention it again, no apology for the repetition. That's the way we remember things, isn't it? And so in looking at the different times where his life intersects with the life of the Lord Jesus, I've counted a total of questions that Simon Peter asked. Now, you can learn a lot from a question, can't you? <laughs> just, just testing you, just testing you. Simon Peter asked seven questions of the Lord Jesus, each one different and each one instructive. And so this morning, we're going to look at the first two questions. Tomorrow morning in the will of the Lord, number three and number four. Tomorrow night, we'll look at number five. And then the next day, six and seven. And so we're going to look, first of all, in the Gospel of John, chapter six. I'll begin reading in verse 66. John 666. I know the scripture references are not inspired. But there's not a better reference for what we're about to read. Let's look at it, please. John 6.66 says, From that time many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Continuing in verse 67, we see the Lord speaking and Simon's question. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. I'll conclude by reading verse 69. Also we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Lord, to whom shall we go? May we ask the Lord to help us to know the answer to this question. Let's pray. Father, how thankful we are that when we have questions, we can come to you with them. And just as Simon Peter asked the Lord directly, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We pray that this morning that we might know the word of eternal life. And that word, that final word, is you, Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would guide us into your word this morning in your matchless wonderful way because of the greatness of your person and the wonder of your name. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Now, there are followers of the Lord Jesus and there are followers. We would say that there are some, as we've read about, who are false followers, and we see them contrasted with the faithful followers like Simon Peter and the other of the 11 disciples, leaving out Judas Iscariot, who was 
was nothing but a traitor, an imposter. But we're going to see a group, first of all, who were the false followers of the Lord Jesus. And as I mentioned, you see them in John chapter 6, verse 66. But what was the reason for following? As you look in this long chapter of the Gospel of John, John chapter 6, you see the reason for following mentioned to us back in verse 26. It tells us in John 6, 26, that Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. The reason for following was nothing more than their appetite. The food that they ate, that was the reason they followed. You know, I meet, I meet people all the time that love fellowship dinners, but they don't know the Lord. <laughs> and they say it's the best meal you can get. On the mission field, it's often the struggle, isn't it? That some will profess to know the Lord just because of some of the things that they receive by being a professing Christian. I think the missionaries in China used to call them rice Christians. And you know, there's a lot of that going on even in this world because, let's face it, you can't buy a membership into a society like we have in the family of God, can you? I mean, a place to where you have mutual trust one for another and the enjoyment just of the simple things of life. It's an inviting thing. It's the best thing that believers have going. But because of that, being such an open gathering of people, there are many that come in, not only deceiving the true believers, but sometimes deceiving their own selves, which is the ultimate form of deception, deluding themselves. And so we see false followers who thought they were following, but they weren't. And they were following for one reason and one reason only, and the Lord Jesus put His finger on the problem. You're only following because of the food that you eat. Well, their request immediately in verse 31 was, well, why don't you just show us a sign? Show us a sign like our father saw, like manna in the wilderness. And the Lord Jesus, well, he responded to that request. He said, I am the true bread. And well, they made a false request. Lord, evermore give us this bread. And he explained how he was the true bread. And even though he explained in perfect detail how he was that perfect bread that comes out down from heaven and fills our souls and sustains our life, still we see their response. Look in John chapter 6, verse 41. The Jews then murmured against him because he said, I am the bread which came down out of heaven. They complained about what he said. There's a lot of murmuring going on in our world today, isn't there? Especially when it comes to the person of Christ. Look in verse 52 as well. That murmuring turned into a quarrel among themselves. In verse 52, it says, The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Well, I love the sound effects, don't you? Huh? I mean, you say something and you get a great big boom, a clash, huh? And so let it drive it home. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Well, it doesn't always work, you know. Look, if you will, in verse 60. What was the problem? It tells us that therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? And when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured about this, he said to them, does this offend you? I want to tell you, the Lord never paints a rosy picture of what it means to be a committed, faithful follower of him. 
He's never promised us a path or a bed of roses, has he? He's told us straightforwardly what to expect. They hated me, he said. They will hate you. And so he doesn't give any slack whatsoever. He said, does this offend you that they're quarreling about me? What then, verse 62, if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? The words that I speak to you at the end of verse 63, we read, the words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life, but there are some of you who do not believe. Now, we see the false followers. The faithful followers are troubled by the false followers. We were reading, our brother Keith was reading to us in the book of Philippians about those who are trying to destroy the faith of believers and that their persecution was really just a sign of their perdition. So not to be shaken from our faith because it is, it is challenged. In fact, when you take these questions or these challenges to the Lord Jesus, what does he do? Well, he doesn't say, don't let that bother you. It'll be okay. Rather, he pushes the challenge a little harder. These tests don't come to undo us, but to strengthen us and to make us ready. And so when the disciples seemed like they were about to give way, look what we read in verse 67. The Lord challenges the faithful followers by asking the question, do you also want to go away? And the question seems to just hover and hang in the air. Do you also want to go away? Now, it's just you and me here. <laughs> we can be honest. When I meet believers who start looking at other people, either other believers who are not living faithfully for the Lord, or even unbelievers and all the things that they enjoy of this world, and they start to comment on it, you know what it shows me? It shows me there's that same draw that's taking hold of their hearts. And I can relate to it because I have the same struggle that anyone else does, like we all do. We understand. Many times at a prayer meeting when few are attending, I hear someone say, well, where's everyone else? Well, here's the real one, chapel cleanup day. How come it's just us? Well, I think we understand that, don't we? You know what it really says is, I don't really want to be here either. If they're not here, do I really have to be here? Take the Lord's challenge to your heart. Do you also want to turn away? We don't want to turn away, do we? In the big picture of things, we want to be faithful to the Lord and not let anything distract us, deter us, or turn us back from following Him. And so he just asked the question, do you also want to go away? Now, I know I'm preaching to the choir. Here you are suffering hardship just to be here at the conference out of doors. Listen, the question still has to touch your heart. Do you also want to go away? And Simon Peter answered his question with a question. Now, I've already asked you about questions, but you can make a statement with a question, can't you? I just did, huh? What was the saying? Rabbi, Rabbi, why do you always answer our question with a question? And the rabbi said, do I do that? 
Sometimes we do. And Simon Peter answered the Lord's question with a question. And the question is simply this, and it's for us today. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. There is only one source, one way. It's a narrow way, one way that leads to life, and few there be that find it. Broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many enter therein. But when it comes to the words of eternal life, there's only one and one only single source. A number of years ago at a funeral for a a dear godly lady, I met with her nephew, great nephew, I think, who was an educated man. And prior to the funeral, he had some questions and conversation. He said, I've been studying world religions lately. And I said, well, that's very good. I'm sure you found that they're all pretty much the same. He was taken aback. He said, yes, that's exactly what I found. They're all pretty much the same. I said, well, that's the great difference, you know. What difference, he asked. I said, I thought you'd never ask. (laughs) The difference between the truth of Christianity, of the salvation that God offers, compared to all the religions of the world. Because all the religions of the world say there are many ways to God. And it basically comes right down to works that you have to do in order to win God's favor. The difference is the truth of salvation that God offers through Christ is there's one way and only one that leads to life. And when I said, uh, the Lord Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, He said, well, I'm sure he didn't mean he was the only way. I said, well, let me finish the verse. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then I finally had the classic response I've always heard about but never heard directly. He said, that's pretty narrow-minded, isn't it? (laughs) The only problem was I didn't think I was ready for answering that question. And the Lord gave it to me. I said, well, you know, he didn't say one way and only one in order to be narrow, but in order to be simple enough that anyone can understand it. You know, the world is studying religions. As Paul writes to Timothy, he said, they're always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. But for the gospel, the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, it couldn't be more simple, could it? And yet more profound to hold our attention, not only for this entire life, but for all eternity, we'll be wondering at the wisdom, the manifold wisdom of God to devise such a plan that would include whosoever will that they may come. And how? By one way and only one. Lord, to whom shall we go? And you can exhaust all the treasures that this world has to offer, all the pleasures that it seems to make available, but you will never find anyone who will satisfy your soul except for the only one who is the only source that has the words of eternal life. Not only the quantity of life, but the quality of life. That's what eternal life is. Yes, it's everlasting, but it's deep down eternal. It's the very life of God himself that comes to be in you through the person of Christ. Isn't that wonderful? Now, 
just to make sure we've got a good, solid foundation of that one source of eternal life. I want to just take you through a few verses, verses that you know so well that you might be tempted not to turn and read them. Don't fall to the temptation. Turn to the Gospel of John where we're at to chapter 1, please. First of all, I want to read these first three verses of the eternal Word. Now, I'll give you an easy way to remember these next few references. They're all going to be verses 1 through 3. So just put that in your memory, 1 through 3 of the verses, but they're going to be different chapters. The first one's John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. If we could just have one little subtitle, He is the eternal Word. Always has been, always will be. In the beginning, with God, was God, all things created through Him because He's the eternal Word. Turn now to the other John 1, 1 John chapter 1. What verses are they? 1 through 3. Very good. 1 John chapter 1 and 1 through 3. You have the eternal Word in the Gospel of John. You have the incarnate Word in the first epistle of John. Do you remember what we know? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, here's what we read of the incarnate Word, the Word made flesh, in flesh, incarnate. And it says, that which was from the beginning. You see the connection to the Gospel of John immediately. Which we have heard. He uses the scientific method here, by the way. He not only hears it, but that which we have seen, he sees it with our eyes. That which we have looked upon in examining carefully, and our hands have handled, we've even touched him concerning the word of life. The life was manifested. That's the idea of being made flesh. And we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested or made known to us. Don't stop there. We've got to do verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son. Just think of it. The incarnate Word that came and brought us into the family of God. So we have the eternal Word in John 1, the incarnate Word in 1 John 1. Now, one more portion. Over to the book of Hebrews, please, chapter 1. And in Hebrews chapter 1, are verses all the same, verses 1, 2, and 3. Now, I know the great debate over who wrote the book of Hebrews, and I'd like to settle that debate right now. We'll go by the first word of the whole book. God. Aren't you glad you've got a word from God on this? Because He not only is the eternal Word, the incarnate Word, He's the final Word. And the final Word is Jesus. Look, if you will, in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. God, who at various times and in different ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has 
in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person, and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, set down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hallelujah! What a Savior! What a Lord! The final word, no other thing could be added to it nor taken away from it. This is Christ, the eternal Word, the incarnate Word, and the final Word that God has for us. Now that's simple enough, isn't it? That anyone can understand. Where else would you go? To whom else would you go? There's only one source, and the Lord Jesus Christ is that one source of eternal life. Now, I'm so glad that the living Word was written down so we could know Him better. The Word made flesh and also put into print. So we won't make a mistake. It's written in black and white and should be read every day. Somebody asked me, what, color, what kind of Bible should I get? I said, just make sure it's red. You mean the color? No, R-E-A-D. Read it every day. The Bible should be read all over from front to back. <laughs> Would you look in Hebrews chapter 4 while you're there? Because the Word of God is the written form of the living Word. And as we look at it in Hebrews chapter 4, notice it in verse 12, please. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, three things about the written Word of God. The first one, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, tells us, For the Word of God is living. Can you imagine a book that is alive? Don't underestimate the power of this Word, that you can read the words of life. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. This is a living book. It breathes and bleeds the blood of Christ, the living Word of God becoming the written Word of God, and this book is alive the living Word of God. I have a friend who was an unbeliever. His wife was a believer. And he called me up right before Christmas. He said, I want to buy my wife a Christmas present. I'd like to get her a new Bible. Where do you buy them, he said. Barnes and Noble? Where should I find a good Bible? I said, there's a Christian bookstore. That's where you should go. And I gave him the address. And, and he said, what kind of Bible should I get? And so he told me, he said, I peeked on her nightstand where she's been reading the Bible and she leaves her Bible there. And he said, it's kind of an ugly green color. And I looked at the title and it said, The Living Bible. And he said, it scared me to death to think about it. <laughs> now, only a couple people caught that because I didn't catch it at first either till I hung up the phone. The Living Bible scared him to death? <laughs> well, it doesn't scare too many Christians. It usually just makes them mad. But I want to tell you, he had a point, didn't he? The Bible is a living book. There is no other book in all the world that has the power of the Bible. Some things you read will inform you. Other things you read may reform you. But only the living Word of God can transform you, can actually have a changing effect on us because it's alive. Not only is it living, look, if you will, please, 
to the second thing about the Word of God. It's living and it's powerful. That the Word that is spoken, He spoke the worlds into being. And He can speak to us who are dead and make us alive by His power, just by the Word of God. This is God's Word. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That's how powerful His Word is. It breaks the cedars of Lebanon. It has the power to change our lives and to speak from the very beginning of creation to the very consummation when he stands against his enemies in Armageddon and a sword proceeds from his mouth and annihilates his enemies in utter destruction and then casts them into hell by his very word. It's a powerful word. But then lastly, the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's so sharp that it divides asunder, as it goes on to say, soul and spirit, You want to explain those two, where one starts and where the other stops to me? (laughs) How about bone and marrow? That's a pretty sharp divide, isn't it? Oh, no, it gets worse. It is a divider and a discerner between the thoughts and intents of the heart. In other words, we can fool everyone around us. We can even fool ourselves, but you can't fool God's Word. It speaks right to the heart, and it is living and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. Les Rainey shared with me this little saying. It's not his, but it's wonderful to repeat. When it comes to the Word of God, someone has said, read it to be wise, believe it to be saved, practice it to be holy. Christ is its grand subject. Our good is its design. The glory of God, its end, our goal It contains light to direct you, food to sustain you, comfort to cheer you. And it should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet on a pathway of righteousness. It is everything we need for the Word of God, the Scriptures. Well, they are able to make us wise unto salvation, Paul writes to young Timothy. And it gives us everything we need for doctrine, telling us what's right. For reproof, telling us what's not right. For correction, telling us how to make it right. For instruction in righteousness, telling us how to keep it right. And even for the equipping of the man of God, telling us how to help others get it right. I want you to turn to First Peter just for a comment from Peter in his epistle of what he learned about the Word of God and how he exhorts us to hold that Word dear to our hearts. Look in 1 Peter chapter 2, please. 1 Peter chapter 2, and here's what he says. As newborn babes desire the pure or sincere milk of the Word that we may grow thereby. If Christ is the only one who has the words of life, then the only thing that's going to help us to grow spiritually is the Word of God. We need to be feeding on it. It's got milk. It's got meat. It's even got something sweet. It's sweeter than honey. And the honeycomb, the psalmist wrote and sang, and how true it is. There's nothing like the Word of God. Now, that was Peter's first question. Lord, to whom shall we go? He has another question that I'd like to look at with you. Turn to the Gospel of Matthew 
chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, having established what it means to receive the Word, like Simon Peter said, and we know and believe that you are the Christ sent from God, the Savior. Perhaps it was at that point that he had trusted the Savior. If it was at that point, we relate to him also in the second question, because now you're brought into the family of God, and you find out after a little bit of time that it's not all wonderful in the family of God, because it's made up of people like me and you and Simon Peter. And so a second question came up, question number two in Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. In verse 21, Peter came to the Lord and said, Lord, how often shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? How often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Now the Pharisees said three times. Simon Peter doubled it and added one for good measure. Great, big, magnanimous Peter. <laughs> Up to seven times? What a man with a big heart. And the Lord answered his question. Look, if you will. Right there in verse 22. Jesus said to him, this is Matthew 18, 22, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Now, I can see the wheels turning. And you're calculating, oh, that's 490 times. And the next question, is that, is that every day? <laughs> you mean I've got to forgive my brother if he sins against me 490 times? Oh, no, that's not what it's saying, is it? It means every time that someone sins against you and says, forgive me, you're obligated to forgive him. But rather than just make that statement, the Lord gives a parable, and it's a parable of a king who was like a creditor who loaned money, and it was time to collect his debts. Look, if you will, in the following verses in Matthew chapter 18, like in verses 24 through 27. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents, now, a talent is anywhere from 58 to 80 pounds of a precious metal. So I'm approximating about a half billion dollars worth of debt. Now, that shocks us, but all you got to do is listening to the national debt. It doesn't seem like very much, does it? But for an individual account, you might be overdrawn because the man who owed him 10,000 talents, the master decided it's time for payment. And the payment was overdue, verse 25. In verse 26, the debtor now begs for mercy and patience. He says, please have patience. I'll pay all. Like, how long would he have to be patient? <laughs> like, forever? Exactly. Well, it's, you know, even now in our accounting system, they call it a grace period, don't they? How long does God's grace hold out? Well, it holds out forever, too. We're very much like this man, aren't we? Forgiven so much, more than we can imagine, more than I can imagine, at least. And of all things, the king, who is the creditor, he forgives him what? All that debt. 
Now, you'd think a man who had been forgiven all that would say, boy, how marvelous is God's grace. But you know what he does? He goes out, and in this parable, he finds someone who owes him a hundred denarii. A denarii, or denarius, is just one day's work salary for a common laborer. So about three and a half months worth of pay. Now, we can relate more to that, can't we? This man who had been forgiven all that great debt, he went and found someone who owed him just a hundred denarii, and he grabbed him by the throat, and he said, pay me all you owe me. And the man said, just like he said, please have patience. I'll pay you everything. But he wouldn't. He threw him in prison. Kind of hard to pay your debt when you're in prison, isn't it? He threw him in prison until he would pay all. Now, we're talking family life here, aren't we? How often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? In the family, other servants, they went back and told the master what this other servant, who was such a great debtor, forgiven all, had done to a fellow servant. And when the creditor heard it, he went back to that man and he said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt. And he said, turn him over to the torturers. Now, I got to say this in about two or three minutes. Who are those torturers? If we're talking family life, don't put this man in hell. That's not who the torturers are. There are other parables that they end up there where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. This man was turned over to the torturers. And who are the torturers? For in the family of God, there are times when we realize not everybody is as wonderful as we thought they were. And sometimes bad things happen. What are we to do? We're to forgive. How much are we supposed to forgive? Well, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32 says, We are to forgive just as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us. How much is that? Everything. I was hoping for that grand total. Everything. There is nothing that we can't forgive. Now, I know there's a way to go about the whole process of it. Because sometimes when I've said this, someone's come up to me afterwards and said, yeah, but you don't understand. I said, well, yes, I do understand. They don't even know what they did. I said, well, that's even more. The Lord said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. (laughs) What example do we want? Even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us, we're obligated to forgive others. And if we don't, the torturers move in. Who are the torturers? It's that churning that you feel in your heart that you have stepped out of enjoying God's grace and forgiveness yourself. Does it mean you won't go to heaven when you die? No, if you've trusted Christ through the blood of His Son, you're completely washed and you'll enter in into glory. But in the meantime, you won't enjoy the forgiveness that you have because you won't extend it to someone else. A missionary friend came back from the field and told me, she said, I just realized that I've been carrying a real burden of bitterness and unforgiveness. And for 25 years, what another missionary did to me, I've been holding it against them, and it's been eating me up. Her health was going down. She said, it was like I've been drinking poison for 25 years waiting for her to fall over dead. (laughs) You know, when you don't forgive someone, you know who it hurts the worst. Bitterness 
unforgiveness, justified nor unjustified, still has the same effect. And so Peter writes, I'll give you the last verse. Please turn in 1 Peter chapter 3, and I'll close with this. Peter had learned his lesson, and he passes it on to us in his epistle. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, notice it, please, verses 8 and 9. Here's what he writes, 1 Peter 3, 8. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Lord, how often shall I forgive my brother when he sinned against me? The answers are plain, aren't they, in the Word of God shall we pray. Father, we thank and praise you for your wonderful word. We pray that it would find its place in our hearts. And if there is any who are holding and harboring bitterness and unforgiveness, Lord, help us to forgive it immediately, even as you have done for us through the Lord Jesus Christ, for we pray in his name. Amen.